Hello and welcome to That One Case, the podcast where lawyers share stories of the cases that influence their careers. My guest today is persuasion strategist, speaker, author and educator Juliet Huck. Juliet is an expert in the art of persuasion. She has advised numerous clients on how to navigate high stakes discussions and trials, and she educates others in her techniques through her books, The Persuasion Equation and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, and through her learning platform, The Academy of Persuasion. On today's show, Juliet shares with us a case whose contract law focus was all but impossible for jurors to comprehend. She says how focusing on key themes can help you conquer complicated topics and reveals the four pillars of persuasive argument. Gosh, it's been almost about 18 years ago. Uh, I brought in on a case, um, Richard Sewan versus Las Vegas Sands and Shadow Madison's uh, uh, company. And he had claimed and we in the end prevailed, you know, 20, 15, 20 years later, that he opened the door for him for his empire in Macau. And he opened the door by relationships and got him as far up as one of the vice premiers, uh, Sheldon and a couple of his staff to, you know, to basically introduce them because they do business so differently over in China than, you know, we do here in the States. So when the case came over, um, I was fascinated by how business works in China because I've never really been deeply involved in that. So we really had to connect my first goal with my clients was to say, okay, well, they do business differently in China than we do in the United States, but the lawsuit is in the middle of Las Vegas. So how do we get Las Vegas jurors to understand how business works over, you know, in the other part of the world, besides everybody thinks we just have a contract. And if you don't have a contract then you don't have an agreement, well, that doesn't, that's not necessarily the case over there. So we sat down and really worked out themes and themes and connection and how to really get these jurors to understand that there's what they call a, a gifting to each other, what's called Guan Qi in China. And that's basically a favor for a favor. And so we needed to figure out how to tell that story because that's our, you know, our Richard Suen was from Beijing and um, he was coming into Las Vegas. So now you've got someone who's out of the country, Asian, suing one of the biggest, you know, casino uh, outfits. Um, and at the same time, Macau licenses were granted to the Sands, one of the sub-licenses actually. It's a very detailed and long story of how that happened. But the bottom line was there was basically a connection and that connection was the um, Olympics. And the Olympics in Beijing is something that Sheldon Allison helped them get. So it was a favor for a favor. And that's where Quan Chi comes in. So when we were able to tell a story like this, it became something relevant, which was the two, you know, the Olympics. It was something that people, you know, connected to. They understood a gift for a gift. They could see beyond just a written contract, which was the big fight, you know, here in the U.S. So little by little, the, um, you know, the uh, New York Times picked up on this theme. The Forbes magazine picked up on this theme because people could connect with what that meant is that it's favor for a favor, which in terms is, in their language, the word quanchi. So we decided, we designed a, an actual symbol. So every time something visually came up, we used that symbol as an icon to show where this favor for a favor happened. And it was very visually successful uh, to the point where we got the first verdict um, for $40 million. Uh, and then it went up to the Supreme Court in Nevada. Uh, and we had to come back based on some technicalities, we try the case. Um, we got a 70 some million dollar verdict. The second trial time we tried the case, uh, they tried another appeal. 
we came back the third time, but you can understand at the same time, Macau was just going crazy with its profits. So, you know, it was a, it was a fascinating story over a very, very long time. The case ended up settling out um, uh, right after the third opening statement that I helped with my clients develop. And, and that was the, the really amazing part of the story was the collaboration of creativity. You know, you think of lawyers as just being very logical and just, you know, going by the law, but I, my, my best clients are extremely collaborative in the creative process and really trying to understand why certain themes have been developed and why, you know, so, you know, I have hundreds of war stories, but this was such a good one because it was so uh, powerful for so long. And like I said, showed up in so many different publications and, you know, I, I have, yeah, many, many stories like this. I mean, just a quick one to throw out was the Enron litigation many, many years ago. And um, where people were not going to understand how Wall Street worked. People were not going to understand how uh, accounting principles and, you know, deep, you know, corporate books are going to happen. But the theme that was developed as I started looking through this is it really wasn't about any of that. It was really about lying and cheating. And um, so, so when we hit that mark and we could use that thread throughout the entire case, um, we could, you know, sew it up at the end where you know, we could say, look, this, we told you, this is, here's a lie. Here's, here's where he's cheating. Here's where he's lying. Here's where he's cheating. So they didn't have to worry about the technicalities. They just had to understand if it, it was crossing the line of the law. And so those are the types of things I really try to work with my clients on is how do we get personal connection, but yet pick a theme that is actually something people can really understand. Yeah, that's super interesting. From your perspective, if we're putting together an opening statement, what do you, what do you would be kind of the most important ingredients to a really compelling opening statement specifically? Well, the first, the first thing that I start with is what are our bad facts? You know, it's, it's interesting. A lot of lawyers like just want to jump in and say, here's all the great stuff we have. And I want to turn around and say, no, no, no. What's, what's the bad stuff? We have? You know, so to make it compelling, sometimes you got to fall on your sword, right? You got to, you got to admit to your mistakes. And that's not something a lot of people like to do. And I, I understand that, but that is truly probably one of my biggest debates on an opening statement is, Let's explain the bad facts. Let's see how, um, you know, and, and there's a, and, and Harry, this is something that's very interesting to me is that people always talk to me about manipulation. And I said, you know, there, there is no manipulation is the facts are the facts. Now that's, you know, been a very interesting thing to watch these last four years, especially in the States. But I truly believe that it's all about intention. If you're really out there and putting the facts out there, if you're intending to get the right, the truth out, that's what will come out. And people will connect with that. We're human beings. We know when somebody's lying to us, right? So I think putting together that opening statements to see how much of a story. So I look at the four elements that I say to be persuasive. What do you know about your decision makers? You know, who's sitting in those boxes? Who are you as a persuasive presenter and a storyteller? And what is, have you developed a persuasive story? Or are you just putting a bunch of facts out there? And then how do your visuals tie into that so that you can raise retention levels by like 70% because those retention levels and visual just go through the ceiling. So those four elements are super important to be balanced at all times. And if you forget one of them, you know, one of them just falls off the tracks. If you forget to talk about a really persuasive story in your opening statement, then you're just, again, throwing up a bunch of facts. So those four elements are very, very important. That's really interesting. And it's come up in my conversations before this kind of importance of, of authenticity. And so I just kind of want to circle back to your kind of your point about you know putting the bad stuff out there and actually i kind of it, it, it speaks i suppose to, to to authenticity in some way in terms of whether it's a judge or a jury or whatever this the case may be it's uh yeah authenticity and and yeah I, I'm, I'm just repeating myself being authentic is important right <laughs> yeah well, 
oh, 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 it's, it's authenticity builds credibility and trust. And that's where uh, if you go to the second circle, so right, you get your decision maker first and you, are you an authentic person? Are you, do you come off? And this is a, again, another training I do. I, I tell, you know, my, my um, clients, go, just go ask somebody, do you come off authentic? Or do you just come off, you know, really? And, and how are you a listener? Are you listening to what other people are saying? So yeah, authenticity is, I mean, a very interesting skill set, but it's not the only piece. It has to be a piece of the pie because that authenticity will make you a better storyteller. And that's where, you know, that's why I look at Johnny Cochran, who was probably one of the most authentic people you could see, not afraid to say now behind the scenes, I don't know, but on the front side, he came off very authentic and, and because of that storytelling and the knowledge of his case, that's the other thing too. It's like, you really, you know, as young lawyers, I say, you really have to be knowledgeable. So you can't just put a bunch of science up there and say, okay, I want my expert to explain this. You got to know that science to be authentic. So you, you got to show that authenticity, absolutely. And, and to what extent do you feel like you have to, in, in your work specifically, I suppose, kind of tweak tweak these things to the individual because we all have different person we're not all johnny cochran's right so some of us are are more introverted even though you know the the work of of, of working in court is, is an extroverted one by nature uh so maybe the, the the introverts are like me are sort of less common in that world but you know we all have different personality traits right and things will our strengths and weaknesses so how, how do you kind of yeah think about kind of tweaking uh your approach per per person so let's take somebody who's really really you know stage fright let's just call it right because that's basically what you're on opening statement you're on stage and and um and i think that to me it's again if you just work from your heart and you are authentic but you did your homework understanding your decision makers so let's let's just say a jury in los angeles is going to be very different than a jury in idaho right so you do some research on that what what is it and the, one of the things that i have always told my clients is you know that week that you're there before trial just watch local tv you will start to see what people see, how they see it, what they're hearing, language, slang. Um, you really will understand things a little differently, but um, you have to get to know that decision maker. And 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 a perfect example, the story was told with the Las Vegas Sands is that we had uh, in the last case, an all women jury, which is very, very unusual. And that set our game plan a little bit. We had to shift our game plan just a little bit because um, that how women make decisions is very different than men. And you've got to consider that as well. Yeah, super interesting. What, what's the most common question that you, you get from lawyers um, when you're working together? How do I win my case? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Juliet, can you, can, you go, can you go to the court for me? Just... <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the funny part. Most people think that I'm a lawyer and that's the funny, I, my background's advertising. And so um, how I don't touch the law. I absolutely don't touch the law. I don't have a bar number, but I, what I can do is I'm the bridge between the law and real life. That's really how I explain myself on how you can bring it into a place that the law can make sense to people because it can be very, very complicated and, um, and skewed and you're on all different ways of trying to think about what that means sometimes as simple as just truth or lies after speaking with julia i think it's almost unfair to call her practice an art if anything she's turned the act of persuasion into a science and i'll definitely be checking out her books my thanks to juliet for sharing her story with us today if you want to find out more about Juliet, the Persuasion Equation or the Academy of Persuasion, you can find all the links in the show notes over at thatonecase.com. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, please do share it with someone you think would also find it interesting. All the details on how to follow the show are found at thatonecase.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you again next time as Joshua Barron tells us the story of That One Case. Thank you.